This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. This morning, I want to preach to you a sermon that's entitled, Living Inside Out. Mark chapter 7, once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? It doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside and make a man unclean. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Now, at first glance, the scripture passage seems antiquated. It seems out of touch with the overwhelming, significant issues of life. No one woke up this morning and thought to themselves, I really hope to hear a message on the pros and cons of hand washing. 
For us, the washing of hands has much more to do with hygiene than holiness. I suspect that most of us hope that all of the customers at Cozumel today will wash their hands before they eat their lunch. But even if some of those customers don't wash their hands, that's not really going to be a, a problem that tops your you know, problem priority list. No, you've got bigger problems than that. You come into church this morning and you're concerned with your son. Your son that is living in open rebellion to the Lord. You taught him right from wrong. You had him in church every time the doors were open. But now he's making decisions that grieve your heart and disobey the word of God. And when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you do not think to yourself, I wonder if I wash my hands before supper. No, you, you wonder about your son. Somebody else comes into church this morning and you're consumed and concerned with the dating relationship of your daughter. It's not that you don't trust your daughter, you just don't trust the knucklehead that she spends a lot of time. You're not concerned about the cleanliness of their hands. You're concerned about the cleanliness of their relationship. That's what churns your stomach at night. Still others come in and you're overwhelmed and burdened by your marriage. If marriages could be admitted to the hospital, yours would be an intensive care unit, bed number one. You don't know what happened. I mean, over the years, the romance is gone. You fight more than you laugh these days. You act as if you're roommates, not husband and wife. You don't know how it got into this predicament, but you walked into church today with this thought on your mind. I don't know how much longer I can put up with this. Still somebody else comes into church today. And what burdens your heart is you've convinced yourself that the cancer's back. You're in remission but you just have a hunch that something's not right. In three weeks, you go back for a scan and, and you're worried about that. And, and, and you tell yourself, don't worry, just pray. But yet that's the thing that you think about first thing in the morning when you wake up. That's the last thing on your mind when you go to bed at night. Still other people come in today and they're concerned with their finances Worried to death that the beast of inflation is going to devour every penny of your savings. You got a little bit of a nest egg, but not much. Your recent stay in the hospital put a dent into that. And, and now the water heater at the house just ran out and your transmission is slipping on your car and you just don't know how you're going to make it. And you fear that you're going to run out of money before you run out of breath. You walk in here today and you have bigger problems than whether or not you wash your hands before you eat. My friend, before you tune me out and before you turn me off today, can I just tell you that I think this passage has something to say to every single person that's listening to my voice with every single problem that they bring 
into the sanctuary. It is Mark who sets the stage for us. He introduces us to the main characters of the story. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come down once again from Jerusalem to examine Jesus. It's not the first time in Mark's gospel we've been introduced to these religious elite individuals. We bumped into them in Mark chapter 3. It's there where they came down for the first time to examine this upstart rabbi from Galilee to take a look at his ministry. And after they examined Jesus and the things he was doing and teaching, they concluded he's demon possessed. Now, for most people, if the Pharisees labeled an upstart rabbi as demon possessed, that would be a scarlet letter on the ministry. Everything would be over. Not the case with Jesus. It seemed that more and more people were attracted to him, that the scare tactic of the Pharisees did not work. You get to Mark chapter 6, and Jesus has a massive crowd, and he feeds 20,000 individuals with five loaves of bread and two fish. And on that day, they want to make him king by force. Why? Because he filled their bellies and he healed their family members. And now here we are in Mark chapter 7, and the Pharisees are back. They got to re examine. They got to think now, wait a minute. We've already given the word on Jesus. He's supposed to be demon possessed. That's supposed to nullify any uh, large crowd that comes around him because nobody wants to be around a person that's demon possessed. And yet we hear that larger crowds are coming. So the Pharisees had to say to themselves, we've got to do something. We've got to identify some chink in the armor that's a deeper invalidation than being demon possessed. So they sat back and they watched. And they noticed that Jesus and his disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. Let there be a collective gasp go across the crowd. It's not that big of a deal to you, and it's not that big of a deal to Mark's original audience. In fact, beginning in verse 3, he's got to give a parenthetical statement. You'll recall that he's writing primarily to Gentile believers living in the mid-60s of the first century, suffering enormous persecution at the hands of the Roman government. They're not preoccupied about hand-washing. In fact, they don't even think about it. Oh, but Mark says, but Jewish believers... They're not going to eat without washing their hands. In fact, before they sit down to any meal, they will undergo a ceremonial washing of their hands. And not just their hands, but they are so consumed with preparation of food and themselves that they will wash their pots and pans and copper kettles. They'll wash just about everything just to make sure that everything is clean. And the Pharisees thought to themselves, we've got him. We've got him. He lives with disregard to the tradition of the elders. In fact, they sat down with Jesus and they said, why is it that you permit your disciples to live loosely? You permit your disciples to eat without even washing their hands? You know the tradition of the elders. You know that you're taking contamination into your body, thereby making yourself, declaring yourself unclean before God. Why in the world do you live with no regard for the tradition of the elders? Now, you may remember and recall that God gave his word to Moses on Mount Sinai and it's recorded for us in the Pentateuch, 
in the first few books of the Old Testament. It's the law of God, commonly called the Torah. But you've read those parts that are hard to understand. You've read those parts in Leviticus and you walk away scratching your head thinking, what's that all about? So the religious people of antiquity, they began to give commentary on the Torah. They would pass on their commentary, their oral traditions. They would pass them on from one generation to the next. Eventually, somebody said, we need to codify this. We need to put it down in a multi-volume work. And that multi-volume work is called the Mishnah. The best way for us to understand it is that the Torah is the word of God and the Mishnah is man's word on the word of God. So the Mishnah is like a running commentary. And it is so cumbersome, it is so large that there are 30 chapters in the Mishnah on how to properly wash pots and pans. 30 chapters. Let that sink in. 30 chapters on how to properly wash pots and pans and kettles so that you can be declared clean in the sight of God. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah in response to those Pharisees and teachers of the law. He said, Isaiah was right. For he quoted the Lord who said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. They come to me with empty, vain worship. They're more consumed and concerned with the rituals of men. Jesus said in verse 8, to the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day, you are no longer holding on to the commands of God, but you're holding on to the traditions of men. I find that interesting, that indictment that Jesus gives. You are clinging or clutching, you're holding on to the commands of God. In your English translation, it's just like mine. The commands is written in plural, commands of God. What's interesting is that in the ancient text, in the Greek New Testament, that word is singular, command of God sure that the translators have very good reason of why uh, they have translated it plural when it's written singular. You think to yourself, what difference does it make? Well, if it's the plural word of the commands of God, then what Jesus is saying is you have abdicated, you've let go of the Torah in its totality. Vicious indictment. But if he's saying singular, you have let go, you're no longer holding to the command of God, that begs the question, what is the command of God? On multiple occasions, Jesus has asked the question, what is the greatest command of God? He answers it the same way every time. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest command. In fact, All the law and the prophets hang on this word. To love God with everything inside of you, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If Jesus is saying in a singular fashion, you have let go of the command of God, the indictment he's leveling against the religious people of his day is you no longer are loving God adequately. In an effort to follow the law completely, you have abdicated the law fundamentally because you are so cumbersome in all the rules and regulations, all the rituals and traditions that you're placing upon people that you've forgotten the most fundamental lesson in all of the Bible. It is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a vicious indictment. 
In fact, I can't think of a worse indictment that Jesus could level against anybody. You've forsaken your first love, is what Jesus is telling them. You have let go of the great command to love God with everything inside of you, which begs the question this morning, how well are you loving God? Are you holding on to the command of God? And of course we would say, of course, I love God. I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were more on fire for the Lord than you are today? Has there ever been a moment in your life, a season in your life, when you were more eager in evangelism than you are today? Has there ever been a Sunday that you were more excited to come to church than this Sunday when you woke up this morning? Has there ever been a week in your life where you read more scripture than you read this past week? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then maybe, my friend, you have let go of the command of God. Because if we cling and clutch and hold to the command of God, where we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it'll be obvious and evident in the decisions that we make, in how we live our life, on how we preoccupy our schedule, what we stuff into our calendar, and what we do each and every day. And there will never be a time where we're more passionate for God than we are right now in this moment. So I wonder if Jesus would level the same indictment against you and against me that he levels against the Pharisees. What he's saying to them is that outward piety is no substitute for inward purity. Another thing that he is communicating to them is that the path to God is not bound in religious rituals. The path to God is found in a devoted heart. So Jesus, like a great preacher, gives an illustration. He says, let me show you how you have let go of the command of God and how you have provided loopholes in the Mishnah for people to obey man-made rules and regulations. He says, you'll recall the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It's the fifth one. It's one of the top 10. It's right there smack dab in the middle. There are four commands before it. It kind of provides a hinge to those four vertical commands of how we live with the Lord. And it also provides a hinge to the five horizontal commands of how we are to live one with the other. It's the first command with the promise. Honor your father and mother so that you will live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Later, Jesus said in Exodus, Moses records for us that if a man curses his father and mother, he must be put to death. Now, why would God say that? God would say that because of his priority with the family unit. The family by his design is an important building block of every civilization. And so God prioritizes the family, a husband and a wife, parents and children, and children are to heap honor and glory upon mom and dad all the days of their lives. Now, as young children, the way we honor our parents is that we obey them. Isn't that what we tell our children? We tell our children, you got to honor me. You got to obey me. You got to do what I tell you to do. But the older we get, the way we honor our parents is by the way we live our life. And at some point, the way we honor them is by taking care of aging parents. There's a tipping point somewhere, right? Where you as the child almost become the parent. 
And you provide care and love and nurturing for your aging mom and dad. That's true in this society. It is so true in the days of Jesus. He said, but you provide a loophole. You uh, provide an exception to the rule. Uh, Moses did not stutter. God is very clear. We are to honor God with uh, everything that we have. We're to honor our father and mother. We are to take care of them, not to curse them, to provide for them, to love them. And yet, in the Mishnah, you provide an opportunity for people to make an offering, give a gift. It's a vow. It's called korban. A korban is a gift that was given to the work of the Lord. In the Mishnah, it even provided an opportunity for somebody to give a deferred gift, which meant what? Which meant they would give it sometime in the future. So that if a mom or dad came into a financial need, their son could say to them, Mom, Dad, I really wish I could help you, but I can't. You know that vow I made to the church. You know that that uh, that pledge, that korban. Korban that I made. And also in the Mishnah, check this out. There was a loophole in the sense that that son could then come back and say, but you know what? God led me to spend it in another way. You see how this could be abused? I mean, even people today will tell me, you know, God told me to do X, Y, or Z. And there are sometimes that I really question that God ever even remotely said for you to do X, Y, or Z. But yet we will put God on the hook and we will claim that God told us to do something. And I think we give God way too much. Uh, he didn't tell us to do that. And that's happening in this day. So this son could say to mom and dad, mom and dad, I would really love to help you. But you know what? I, I made this vow. I made this gift. Uh, it's a deferred gift. I still have the money at my disposal, but I really can't help you. I'm so sorry. I wish I could. I wish I could. I still love you a lot. I still honor you. I still, you know, I'm not cursing you. I'm still helping you the best I can. I'm praying for you, dad. I'm praying for you, mom. That's the best I can do right now. And Jesus said, you in your traditions of the elders, you permit him to break and nullify the word of God in order to keep the traditions of men. In the days of Jesus, this Mishnah was held at such high esteem that the Mishnah was regarded as on par or greater than the Torah. We always get in trouble when we put anything above the Word of God. Anything above the Word of God. Once again, Jesus is telling them, listen, the path to God is not through religious rituals. The path to God is through a devoted heart. But he looks at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he says, you have bent the rules to accommodate the selfish, sinful bent of your heart. I hear that, and I wonder if Jesus would ever level that against us. You're bending the rules. Why? To pad your own pocket. You're bending the rules. Why? To make your life more comfortable. You're bending the rules. Why? Because of the selfish, sinful bent of your heart and mine. Jesus gathers the crowd together and he says, listen. He said, you can wash your hands every day and twice on Sunday. And it's no guarantee you're going to be clean before the sight of God. 
You can wash your hands all you want to. You can follow all the rules and regulations and the traditions, and that's no guarantee that you're innocent in God's sight. Furthermore, Jesus said, it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's not the fact that you eat dirty food with dirty hands and that thereby makes you dirty in the sight of God. It is not what goes into a man because Jesus said it doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach. So it's not what's external. It's what's internal that makes us unclean. He goes into the house and the disciples say, Jesus, you really put them in their place. But what's that all about? I mean, we're really excited that you put the Pharisees in their place. I mean, you really gave them what for, but we don't understand what for you gave them. We, we don't know what in the world you're talking about. So then he gives them a digestion 101 lesson. He goes, listen, the food that you eat, it doesn't go into your heart. It goes into your stomach. And then it goes out of your body, right? What makes you unclean is not what goes into you. What makes you unclean and reveals the uncleanliness of your life is what comes out of you. It's not that the food goes into your heart. See, the problem is an inside job, Jesus says. The problem is not external. The Pharisees believed they could keep people clean from external contamination. So they loaded them down with all these rituals, all these things that said, wash your hands here, Don't touch that. Make sure that kettle and pot is clean. Only walk this many steps on the Sabbath. Do this. Don't do that. As long as you didn't bump into dirt, as long as you didn't bump into uncleanliness, then you would not be unclean. Jesus says the problem is not external. Your problem is far greater than that. You've got a bigger problem than hand washing, Jesus says. Your problem is an inside job. It's a heart issue. It's a heart problem. I think Jesus would agree with me here that every problem is a spiritual problem and every spiritual problem is a heart problem. And Jesus is saying to the crowd, to his disciples, you've got a heart problem. If you want to see whether or not a man is clean or unclean, look at the fruit of his life. Look at what comes out of his life. Jesus gives a baker dozen, 13, wretched sins at the end of our passage. He says, listen, and he's talking to his disciples here. He says, listen, for from within, out of men's hearts, men just like you, he's saying, from within a man's heart come evil thoughts. Anybody guilty yet? Sexual immorality. Anybody guilty yet? Okay, we'll stop doing that. I'll just assume that people are guilty, okay? (laughs) Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. The, The last word is just foolishness. Any foolishness ever come out of your life? The foolishness of our heart reveals... The disease of our heart. We are unclean. We can wash our hands all we want to. We can come to church all we want to. We can do religious rituals all we want to. And it's not going to clean our clogged heart. We've got a heart problem. It's Jeremiah who says the heart is a deceitful place. It's above and beyond all cure. David said in Psalm 51... Uh, Create in me a new heart, O God. 
He uses that Hebrew word bara for create, and create always and only has God as its subject. He's asking God to do what only God can do. I need you, David says, I need you to create within me a new heart. I had a friend a few years ago named Ed. Uh, Ed was a wealthy man. He was uh, a realtor. He was a farmer. He owned half of the county in which we resided. He was a church member. One day, Ed told me, um, you know, I went to the doctor today. The doctor told me in one of my main arteries, 90% blocked. He said, Pastor, what's interesting is that three days ago, I was running the hillside with the horses. And my doctor told me that if that artery became completely clogged, and it was almost there, but if it became completely clogged, I would fall to the ground and not know what hit me. And life as I know it would be over. Now, Ed went in and they did triple bypass surgery and he responded and recovered completely. But as I heard that story, I thought to myself, you know what? I think there are a lot of people that are running the hillside of life with a clogged heart and they don't even know it. Of course, I'm not speaking physically. I'm speaking spiritually. I think there are a lot of people that are going up and down life, running throughout the hillside of life, just doing life, and they don't even realize it, but they got a clogged heart. And if it becomes completely clogged, they're going to hit the ground and not even know what hit them. They're not even going to know what what happened when they stand before the Lord. This is a a big problem. It's not that we have a, a clean hands problem. It's that we got a dirty heart problem. And what's true in the life of the Pharisees and and the scribes is true in the life of the disciples of the first century and true in your life and mine. We need a heart transplant. We are completely and utterly broken because of sin. And it's only Jesus who can cleanse us. It's only Jesus. That's the only way. The only way for us to be cleansed is for Jesus to give us a new heart, to do a heart transplant upon us. I want you to know it's not by accident that we call Jesus the great physician because he is one who has a 100% success rate in all of his surgeries. He's never lost anybody on the table. In fact, everybody who comes to him is saved. Everybody who comes to him is cleansed. Everybody who comes to him is made uh, a new, a new creation in the sight of God. And then one Once he recreates us, then he sends us back out into brokenness as ambassadors of the king because we bump into people who are constantly having clogged hearts and they don't even know it. Because all these things come out of our life and their life and the only way for us to be right with God is not through religious ritual, but through a devoted heart. So the hymn writer is exactly right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that this clogged heart can be made new. And when Jesus does a work in our life, then he sends us out into a broken world with the only message of salvation. 
Why do we emphasize a mission Sunday here at First Baptist Pelham? Why do we talk about 19 mission trips, mission opportunities? Because as an ambassador to the king, as one who's been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, as one who's been touched and changed, then he makes me and makes you his representative to go out and speak on his behalf and say, thus saith the Lord. We've got the only remedy for salvation. Why in the world will we sit on it and keep it quiet? We've got to go out and we've got to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So before you can go on a mission trip, before you can go and proclaim the good news, you got to know it yourself. Say, preacher, how do I know that I know it? Well, let me ask you. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you followed through in obedience unto him? Have you been baptized? Are you a person who it's obvious and evident that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? There's never a time in your life, never a season in your life when you have more spiritual fervor than you do right now. Friend, you can be as close to God as you want to be. You want to be closer to God? Right now you tell him. Lord, draw me close, close to that precious bleeding side. And then once you find the correct pathway to God, which is only through a devoted heart in Jesus Christ, once you find that pathway to God, then you are an ambassador for the king. You go out and you tell. It matters little to me whether you go across the street or around the globe. Just go somewhere. And tell the gospel. Go somewhere and live it. Oh, Jesus, may you be on my mind and may you be in my heart. May you be on my hands and may you motivate my feet. Oh, Jesus, may you lead and I will follow. Because you are the shepherd of my heart. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We give you this invitation. If somebody's here and they do not have a personal relationship with Christ, Lord, I pray you draw them to yourself today. Father, um, if there's somebody here who's a believer, but they have to confess there was a time when they loved you more than they do right now. Father, please hear the confession of our sin today. We love you. We give this invitation. Draw your people into yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen.